You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and my very, very bestie, Steve Ellen. You didn't know I was going to say that, did you? I never know whether you're going to throw to me or not, so I'm not sure whether you're saying Steve Ellen or I am. Um, the day today is Saturday, the 25th of July at uh, yeah, 2 o'clock. Yeah, near enough. Yeah, close enough. Hey, um, lots to talk about with our guest, who is uh, Nick Carr. Do you want to tell us a little bit, little bit about Nick? Well, you and I have both known Nick for years. Nick's a general practitioner in Melbourne. Um, he's very well known both as being a fantastic GP clinically around town, but he's also very well known because he does lots of radio. He's on our show, Radio Therapy, where he, oh, I've forgotten what his nickname, oh, he's Dr. Nick. He's Dr. Nick on Radio Therapy. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't remember his nickname. Um, he's also on ABC Melbourne, where he's part of Ritz and Cures, a show that uh, I started with Bill O'Shea about eight years ago. Well, Lindy Byrne started it, to be fair, and it's gone ever since there. Um, now with David Astle, I've actually left the show, but Nick's still on uh, ABC every Tuesday. He also writes broadly. He's very famous for a few topics. He's a real proponent of voluntary assisted dying and has written about that for many years. But he also writes and teaches broadly about the philosophy and practice of um, general practice. Uh, he's really an, an, an excellent doctor, and I'm really looking forward to the interview. Mm. And he and I are writing a parenting book as well, which has been great fun because he's got great stories and great ideas too. Hey, man. It's lockdown 2.0. Um, it's a tough gig, but you've got six reasons to be cheerful. Yeah, I read this really you know, cool that little song from uh, Ian Jury and the Jock. You know that song? Reasons Ian to be the, Yeah, it was Ian Jury and the Blockheads. And, the blockheads. and it was Reasons to be blockheads. Cheerful. And they kept saying part three or something like that. But uh, hey, by the way, part before three. we reasons get onto be these things, you wanted to say a quick little apology you told me. I better remind you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Speaking of music. We did uh, have a couple of people tell us that uh, I uh, got Jacinda Ardern's name wrong. I called her Jacinda Ahern. I'm whacking myself on my wrist. It should be Jacinda Ardern, and I do apologise. Okay, now that, and I think I copied you because Sam's called her okay. too, so I apologise too. Um, but uh, I read this cool little article in the Washington Post on the weekend, and I just thought, given we're all a bit under the weather with uh, what's going on with COVID and lockdown, it's worth just highlighting it because it was it was called Six Reasons to Be Optim Six Reasons for Optimism. Mm -hmm. You can Google it if you like, and and they're really good. So I thought I'd run through them. So you were um, about to say Six Reasons to Be Cheerful, weren't you? <laughs> I know. I, know, I was turning to. <laughs> I Andrew. put it into your head. Yeah. Yeah. Reasons to, to be, be cheerful. cheerful. Part three. Um, first one is the therapeutic treatments are improving. And the big one they had mm. here that was really looking um, to be uh, great for people who have actually got COVID and are sick in hospital or who are at very high risk and need to be um, prevent getting COVID, like say they're going through cancer treatment, was mm. monoclonal antibodies. So, uh, you know, basically uh, harvesting the antibodies from people who have had COVID and uh, using them as a treatment. Oh, and they're producing them synthetically, I think, too. I, I don't know all the mm -hmm. details, but I'm just giving you the headlines. The second one no, was... That's good. That's 
the treatments are improving, which is good. Treatments yeah. improving. The second one, which they say is a real game changer, is the improved testing. And in particular, apparently on the horizon, is rapid, low-cost saliva tests. So these are tests where you basically spit into a little jar, just like a pregnancy test at home, and you know, a few minutes later you get a result, and they're supposed to be going to spin. I don't know how long it's been since you've been doing pregnancy tests, but you don't spit into the jar. <laughs> no, I said they're a home. Te- I meant that they're a home testing kit like pregnancy. Yeah, but yeah. Where do, how do they find out if a woman's pregnant? Um, but uh, and these apparently are going to cost one to five dollars. And so the point is, you could you know before you go to work, before you go to school, you oh, every could day, do, just, oh, yeah, yeah, you could do these tests. Supposedly they're on their way, which is pretty exciting. Yep. The third reason was that really after three months of debate, the mask. Um, issue has been resolved, that masks clearly work. Because there was a lot of debate early on and there was a lot of experts and the messaging was all over the place. And of course, we had, you know, politicians on both sides. Um, But really, you know, the jury's in now from a scientific perspective and masks work, so that's great. Um, The next one was that the airborne spread is now better understood. You know, so early on, we knew the droplets spread it and that's where we got the 1.5 metres social distancing from because droplets are basically tiny but um, tiny little bits of spit with COVID in them that fall to the floor quickly, whereas the airborne are the aerosols that float in the air and might stay there for a while. Now, that's better understood, which has also contributed to the mass debate, but it's also given lots of important information about how ventilation should be designed and that sort of stuff. So that's um, a real um, bonus. The next one is an interesting one. I hadn't heard this one before, and I haven't researched it enough yet, but it's that prior exposure to some common cold coronaviruses seem to provide some people with a degree of immunity. So there's other um, you know, coronaviruses yeah. that exist, and some people who have had yeah. them seem to have better immunity. And this is giving a whole avenue of scientific research to understand that and perhaps, you know, um, stratify risk better and maybe even develop uh, uh, in maybe even tie into the vaccine issue and then the final one just to touch on of course is vaccine trials seem to be working a number of manufacturers are coming out but I won't say much more about that because I know we're going to talk about that with uh, Dr Nick in about 30 seconds so we uh, cut a little intro and we bring Nick into the convo independent Melbourne radio 3 triple R And joining us now is Nick. G'day, Nick. Steve, lovely to talk to you. G'day, Nick. Hi, Rob. Oh, my goodness. Fancy. The three the three of us have done various things together for many years now. Um, but normally we're sort of part of like radiotherapy on Triple R or Nick and I have done the ABC many times together. Um, but to have us, the three of us on this podcast, it sort of feels like we're just sitting around with a cup of, cup of tea. In fact, I do have a cup of tea in front of me, um, just like normal times. But we've got to switch into, into podcast mode. So why don't we... The only difference is, Steve, that I'm in a closet. <laughs> You're in a shared room. Although, Nick, he's sitting in a nice light. Looks like you've got a library back there, Nick. And that's a very good fake background, isn't it? It makes me look very stupid. <laughs> I've got lots of learned tones. A lot can, I, can I just clarify? I just missed something there. Rob, when you said you are in a closet, did you mean physical or metaphorical? I am. Well, I'm in my um, uh, literal closet because it stops the sound waves bouncing around. So you can, hey, see, yeah. you can see my clothes. 
and they're very nice clothes too. Hey, Nick, uh, let's start the ball rolling. Um, the reason we wanted you on in particular is because you've obviously been a general practitioner for many years and you're you know, beautifully involved in every aspect of general practice from being a clinician to the philosophies of general practice. You write about it, you talk about it a lot. And so this is a big first question, but you know, what, we want to get a sense of what um, COVID-19 has done to the life of a general practitioner. Well, all it's done is turn it completely upside down and inside out. Um, well, let's move I, on to the next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. It is absolutely extraordinary. Um, it is totally unrecognisable. And funny enough, I was away at the start of COVID. I was over in the UK, um, so at the end of March. So I, I brought my flight back home forward because otherwise I was not going to be able to get back in. Mm. And that was in self-isolation for two weeks. So I turned up at my workplace for the first time when COVID had already been running for about four or five weeks. And I didn't recognize the place that I run and work in uh, because all the chairs had been taken out of the waiting room. There was tape all around the floor to keep people at distance from the reception desk. Uh, people were wearing masks. Um, the doctors were wearing scrubs. It was like I'd walked into this alien environment and that's what it's been like ever since. Mm. Have you gradually been able to reclaim your therapeutic space, even though the physical environment's different, a lot of it's over telehealth and you're wearing, when it's not, you're wearing PPE. Do you think you've been able to reclaim the therapeutic space at least and refashion that to be a little bit more like it was? And, um, and the reason I ask it is because the general practitioner is famous for having the greatest therapeutic relationship and where the therapeutic relationship is probably most broad and important. That is a, can I just interrupt for a sec? That is a bloody good question, Steve. I've not, you, I was going to say, that is a great question. Yeah. And, uh, I've, I've and gone all red now. <laughs> it really is a great question because yeah. if you'd said to me prior to this whole COVID change, if you'd said to me six months ago, you're not going to see almost anyone face to face. You're going to talk to people on the phone. Mostly it won't even be with video. Um, how's that going to work for your doctor-patient relationship? And I thought it would destroy it. It would make things almost impossible. And the thing that we've all found, we don't love telehealth by any means, but recognizing that we don't have a lot of option at the moment. We have all been quite astonished by how possible it is to maintain that therapeutic relationship. And partly this is, it's really, what I found, it's really only possible with patients I know well, because as soon as I hear those people's voices, I can picture them. I know what they're looking like. I can always picture their expressions. And the relationship that we have over the telephone is almost unchanged because we know each other and they react to me and my ridiculous sense of humor and so on the same way as they would if they were in the consulting room. Mm. What proportion of consultations, Nick, would be face-to-face -face versus, say, uh, Zoom or computer-driven compared to telephone? So right now we're doing over 80% of our consultations are telehealth. And on the telephone. nearly all of those are voice only. We do do some with video, but it's extraordinary how, because of course in primary care, we're doing relatively short consultations. So we're making a lot of these calls and connections and people have enough trouble getting a decent telephone connection, let alone getting a video connection. So we do most of it just by voice. 
One of the things I was telling some people the other day, and they, they were mocking me, I think, a little bit, is, you know, I'm, when I, I'm doing a lot by telephone and telehealth as well. But when I'm doing face-to-face now, of course, I've got a mask on, and, uh, and we even have to wear goggles over, I have to wear goggles over my glasses. And I find that, you know, facial expressions are so important. And now, with all that on, you've really only got the nod left. And I, the other day, I was in the bathroom, and I had my mask on. So I was practicing making sure my eyes could could convey my emotions because it's so important that people know when you're smiling and all that. So I was just watching myself in the mirror and, you know, and I found myself, you know, so I'm exaggerating my eye movements because that's all people can see. And I know it sounds false, but you want people to know how you're feeling when you're talking to them. So it felt, I I didn't feel it was, I didn't feel it was as stupid as others did. Well, well, I I tried a little experiment. I had a four-month-old in for a vaccine and Normally, four-month-olds are very reactive to people's expressions. They haven't yet developed stranger awareness. So any smiling face, they're happy with. But of course, I'm wearing a mask. And I thought, I'll see what happens. So this four-month-old was gazing at me. And I tried beaming away at this four-month-old from behind a mask. And this kid looked at me slightly perplexed, took about 10 seconds, and then worked out, presumably from my eyes, that I was smiling. And suddenly, this four-month-old beam came across this kid's face. I thought that was fantastic. It just shows how good kids are at interpreting your facial expression, even when most of it is covered. Do you know, normally when I go shopping or I go out to buy stuff, whatever, nowadays it's just groceries. You know, I always like to crack a few jokes with the, the, the checkout person or whatever. And normally they'll give me a charity laugh because they'll see that I'm smiling. But now because there's no, nothing giving away that I'm actually joking, like there's nothing, everything falls flat. And... Hey, I wonder, hey, here's an idea. Can you get a transparent mask? Like a mask that like is kind of clear so people can see your facial expressions? I've never seen one. Now, there you go. There is an idea. But it'll have to let air through and be transparent. So it can't be plastic. It can't be glad wrap. It can't be, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously you can wear those face shields, but you have to have a mask as well yeah, underneath yeah. them. Yeah, no, hey, Nick, what I, about... I, I, as I say, as, you, as, as we were all saying, facial expressions in terms of a therapeutic relationship, when you're seeing the other face, is so important. It gives so much away. Even a four-month-old uh, four can pick that up behind a mask and it, 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 it reacts to something inside us viscerally. So yeah, those lack of facial expressions, I think you're great, Steve, in terms of trying to find new ways of communicate. That's more power to you, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, man. The other really important thing for general practice, and I, I always remember this from medical school, there was a you know, saying that was more mistakes are made in medicine by not looking than not knowing. And so the importance of doing a physical exam and given so much is by you know, telephone and telehealth, has, has that had an impact, do you think, on general practice? Well, I, I don't actually agree with that statement because the not looking that we mostly don't do in medicine is by not asking rather than not looking in terms of physical examination. And you'll be well familiar with this, at least 80%, 85% of our diagnostic capability comes from the story. And only a relatively small percentage comes from the examination. And I've been amazed by how possible it is just with listening to people on the phone to make pretty accurate diagnoses. And I've had people, I had a guy I'd never met before, a new patient bring me up telehealth uh, with a genital issue, which I was able to diagnose uh, with absolute accuracy on the telephone, just by his description, uh, not to not to his satisfaction, I have to say, but uh, it it was possible. 
Yeah, that does remind me. You know, they used to always say the same. I think it was 80% history, 15% physical examination, 5% tests. But it reminds me of there was a famous professor of infectious diseases, Alan Jung at Fairfield. Alan Jung, I think that was his name. Um, and he used to always say, uh, he used to, on the big ward rounds, he'd say to everyone, Okay, students, young doctors, what do I do if I see a patient and after interviewing them for an hour, I have no idea what's going on? And everyone would start naming tests and that name this examination and that. And he'd say, no, I go back the next day and I interview them for another hour. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Nice. No, what you should do if you've been an hour with a patient, you don't know what's going on, is you stop and you ask the patient, what worries you about this symptom? Because if you haven't got any idea, you've missed that the patient's concern is something completely unexpected. And as a simple example, I remember a young guy with a sort of central chest pain. And I did that whole thing, which your professor was talking about. I had no idea at the end of it. And then I used that question. I said, so what worries you about this? And he said, oh, it's just that. And there's the clue. Oh, it's just the what? And he said, oh, it's just that. When my dad had that, Mm. turned out that actually he was developing leukemia. And so underneath this guy's chest pain was an actually an unformulated concern that he had. So that's the answer for that one. It's not go back and just keep asking the questions, ask a different question. I remember seeing some research years ago looking at the difference between what the doctor is thinking as a patient is revealing the history compared to what the patient is thinking as the doctor is listening to the history being revealed. And quite often, as you say, Nick, they were almost diametrically opposite. You know, the doctor might be thinking, oh, my goodness, is it, you know, an acute myocardial infarction? Is it, uh, is it pericarditis? And the patient is thinking, as you said, gee, my dad had leukemia and this is what I'm really worried about. So, yeah, I think we've got to be so conscious one of, of the that. Things that yeah. So because in primary care, we deal with things very early in their evolution. So a lot of people have symptoms which haven't necessarily been um, they they're starting, so they haven't, yeah. we don't know necessarily what's going on, whereas once people get to hospital, it's been refined a bit. And so when people come to us and to, uh, we're asking them, we might think that their headache means that they're stressed or they're concerned they've got a brain tumour. Mm-hmm. Okay, that might be the case. But if we get to the end of the consultation, when I'm teaching students, I say, once you've finished and you're developing a plan, say to the patient, how does that sound? And if yeah. the patient said, yeah, that's fine, doc. You've probably got it right. If the patient says, oh, yeah, and they hesitate, you need to go back and say, why? What are you concerned about? Because it's entirely possible the patient has a concern which you haven't picked up at all. Mm. Nick, Uh, on a parallel note, what you were were saying before about now becoming much more uh, familiar and accustomed to making diagnoses, without actually examining the patient or even seeing the patient, just talking over the phone. Do you reckon there's an opportunity for a textbook called General Practice in the Time of COVID when you really uh, don't rely as much on physical examination or tests when you have to ask, when, when when your interview goes a different way, like the interview you would have now is obviously very different to the consultation you would have when you could see the patient. And perhaps maybe doctors need to learn that differently too. Yeah, I, I mean, my view is that the textbook would say what we should always be saying about general practice anyway. Um, we should be relying on the patient's story. That is our primary source of information. 
So it doesn't change it hugely to me whether it's COVID or not COVID. Uh, uh, the difference here is that we have less easy access to the examination. Well, that's hey, how Nick, it one of the areas anyway. that you've written a lot about, as well as it's an area of passion for your work, is voluntary assisted dying. And I imagine telehealth and telephone and all of this must have had an impact on that. Well, one of the huge impacts here is that we're not actually allowed by federal law to provide voluntary assisted dying care over of the telephone. Of course, it's a, yeah, so, it's a, it, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Out, it's People, outlawed. Yeah, people don't realise, well, it's only outlawed because the Criminal Code Act of 1995 uh, prohibits soliciting suicide through a carriage service, which means a telephone service or internet, that sort of thing. Now, this act was meant to be about cyberbullying and saying to people, oh, go kill yourself and that sort of stuff. It was never meant to have an impact on voluntary assisted dying care because, of course, in 1995, no such thing existed. But unfortunately, the um, legal advice within Victoria was that there would be a clash between providing voluntary assisted dying care and the federal 1995 Act, which those of us involved in VAD, of course, think is nonsense because there is no connection at all between suicide and voluntary assisted dying. And yet we have been told that we're legally not allowed to provide any voluntary assisted dying care over the telephone. Pretty hard in the time of COVID because these people are by definition sick. They don't want to go out. They don't want to have connection with others. And yet we're told that that's the way it, we have It needs to an urgent exemption that. I, mean, I know there was talk of um, some sort of exemption and work around um, when voluntary assisted dying first came in. And then when COVID came in, there was also talk that it needs to be hurried along, but still not occurred. So what... We- We've written and asked for that exemption and we've been told that. And so how are you working around it in practice then? The reality is I think all of us at uh, times are providing that kind of care over the telephone because it's simply impossible not to. Um, so at times I'm sure I'm breaking the federal law um, and I've written about that publicly. I've gone public saying that um, no one's come and arrested me just yet. Um, i it's the kind of care which needs to be provided face-to-face whenever possible anyway. It's very complicated and requires that kind of intensity of interaction. Um, but the reality is in the time of COVID, of course, it's near impossible to do that all the time. Now, Nick, you were talking about exemptions. Um, and I was quite surprised when you told me that you're getting a lot of people coming to your general practice asking for mask exemptions. Tell us about that. So masks became compulsory just the last few days and I was cycling to work on Thursday morning, the day it had become compulsory and was pretty impressed going from Richmond to St Kilda that the compliance rate must have been at least 90%, I reckon. And today, Saturday in the dog park, (laughs) walking there and back, uh, it was 100%. I didn't see anyone without masks, but as you would be well aware, people don't like these things. Mm. And we've already been inundated with people wanting a letter from a doctor saying, I don't have to wear a mask because now a couple of examples and uh, dad rang asking for his adult son who has very severe autism. He's almost nonverbal. He has epilepsy. He has severe behavioral issues. He simply cannot tolerate wearing a mask. And he got the letter because of course that is completely reasonable for this kid. Mm. Dad says, I'll get one on him when I can, but once he decides to pull it off, there's nothing I can do. Mm. Um, another one is a, um, a woman who has quite severe dementia. Her daughter takes her for walks. 
every day, but this woman cannot comprehend why she has to put this thing on her face. Again, perfectly reasonable. But when, when someone rang me and said, oh, I have to work in the city and walk around between places and I get a bit of asthma and I hate wearing a mask, will you write me a letter? The answer was no. If you've got asthma, you wear a mask because you're the last person who should be getting is there a, Is there an exemption list that the government's published or is it based on common sense? It's a combination of the two. So there are illnesses for which uh, exemptions apply. So if you had for example, a severe skin condition on your face, where a mask might be adverse for that, that would be a reason. But again, we've had people with very mild skin problems saying, we want an exemption spot on my cheek or something. I wouldn't really want that. Yeah, I wouldn't want an exemption. And funnily enough, and you know, because it's, so, because it's so new, um, yesterday I was whizzing over. My dad just had cataracts, and so I was whizzing over to put his eye drops in. And I stopped to buy him a cappuccino on the way, and uh, I'd ordered it by phone. So I was popping into the cafe to get it, and and I had my mask on my passenger seat, and I forgot to put it on. I walked into the cafe without it, and I didn't realise till it was. I was the next person in the queue and the person in front of me was this young guy and as he got his coffee, uh, quite rightly, but he was a little bit aggressive, he turned to me and he said, so I suppose masks, I suppose rules don't apply to everyone, eh? Rules don't apply to you, eh? And and then I realised I didn't have my mask on and I knew the cafe, so, you know, rather than apologising to this dick who had just been a bit a bit of an asshole about it, I turned to the cafe owners and said, I'm so sorry, I, um, I just walked in without thinking. I'm still not completely used to it. But, you know, so I'd be a bit Scared. This guy's driving, you know, one of those white utes. He, he, he looked pretty rough. So when you say the dick who was being an asshole, you mean the responsible citizen who was doing what he was required to? Well, by law. he was wearing a mask, but he wasn't required by law to be so rude about it and sort of yell at me in a cafe. That's he could have true. said, "Hey, mate, you haven't got your mask on." You know, they're breathing COVID down the back of his neck. <laughs> I wasn't breathing COVID anywhere. Um, um, I've got to say, Steve, ex- exactly the same thing happened to me today. I went in to, to, uh, to pay for the petrol, and I, as I got to the door, I saw the sign saying, hand sanitizer, and I reached for it, and I thought, hang on, mask. Dashed back to the car, got the mask. I think it's just one of those things we'll get used to. You know, as and, the, as and the from a behavioural said, perspective. You know, car keys, phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think I'll forget again uh, after being so publicly admonished. It's one of the things that astonishes uh, how quickly people adapt. I mean, I was just amazed to see the level of compliance with mask wearing. And, and there were people with scarves around their faces, people who pulled bits of clothing up over their faces, but they were doing it. And this is all in just a, a few days, total transformation. Do you know what, what really got me when I thought, man... I love this community spirit. It was I was going for a walk uh, in the park with my lovely wife, and we were walking there with our masks on. And this guy, you know, a few people ran by us without masks, that because you're not supposed to. And then a couple of people ran by us, and as they were running by us, they pulled out a mask, put it on their face for the five or ten seconds they were running past us, and then took it off once they were in the clear. And I thought, that's it. That's the spirit. You're exempt anyway, but you're trying to do the community thing. I just love that. One of my mates was jogging this morning and he um, told me that uh, virtually everyone had a mask, but a lot of people had, you yeah. know, like those ski ones that sit around your neck. They're only a single layer, but yeah, still they qualify. Yeah. And, you, and he said a lot, yeah. and he said quite a few, he was doing that too, because it was pretty empty, he said, where yeah. he was running. But when he did come to see people, just pulled it up. Hey, um, what about, I want to raise vaccines. Because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on about vaccines. We heard about the uh, Oxford group mm. in the UK, their vaccine. They they were the mm. group that also prepared a vaccine for MERS. So they're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms mm. of um, getting things mm. ready. And they're, they're, there's some reports saying their MERS vaccine being will be out the, of the uh, Mediterranean, um, Middle, Middle Eastern East. Respiratory yeah. 
East. Middle East, no, sorry. And uh, so they're quite um, advanced and they say they'll be, you know, they're hoping by October. And so the World Health Organization and CDC have done a couple of things. One, they're looking for people who will volunteer to be vaccine uh, testers. And two, they're starting to plan who should get vaccines first. So let me start with both of you. Would you volunteer to be a uh, subject for vaccine trials? Before I was would consider being a volunteer for the vaccine trial, I'd want a blood test because as a supposed frontline healthcare worker, I want to know whether I've already met this virus. And I think that's one of the things that we don't talk about enough is finding out what level of um, exposure people have had who haven't had anything in the way of symptoms. I've not had any severe colds or flu or anything like that. Um, but it's entirely possible. I've had a couple of patients with COVID over the months um, since it's been around. So before I volunteered to have someone stick a needle in me, I'd want a blood test to find out whether I've got any COVID-19 antibodies. Oh, I bet that'd be part of the protocols so that it'd have to be, yeah. yeah. And if I was COVID-19 antibody negative, um, then unless this thing had been killing lab ferrets left, right and centre or something ghastly like that, if it was seen as relatively safe, I'd be, I think old people like me should be the first to put their hands up. Well, I'm trying to figure out what the negatives would be, Steve. Um, do I trust the lab? Am I worried about side effects? Am I worried about adverse reactions and uh, you know possible consequences down the line? Uh, look, you know, I think by the time it came to the trial uh, with with the broader public, so a big phase three trial, yeah, I'd stick my hand up for it for sure. Why not? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, what about you? Yeah, yeah, I'd go for it too. Look, you know, I think that the negative on any research is, you know, this is being researched that the negative is are there any things that you don't know about yet, yeah. obviously. And yeah. mostly by the time research is done, we're used to it being having a really long developmental phase. Now, a vaccine mm. normally takes about five years, some vaccines 20, mm. some 30 mm. years. Mm. These, If a vaccine does come out in October, for example, or even middle of next year, it'll be the fastest vaccine ever made. So Ever. that's the only, yeah, that's the only thing. But having said all that, this is a world health crisis. And uh, so I think, you know, you put your hand up if you can. But from what I heard from the Oxford study, my understanding is that the several hundred million doses that are being produced are already allocated. Are the, I didn't think that Australia, is Australia getting some? I didn't. Oh, well, or, that's, I mean, that's just one of the hundred um, vaccines. So right. that particular vaccine, they've um, partnered up with AstraZeneca yep. and they've already setting up um, factories in various parts of the world. There's one in South America, one in America, one in India, I forget where mm. else, um, you know, mm. so that they can, so that if it turns out to be successful, they can, you know, produce it super quick. But you are quite right. I gather at least 70% is already allocated. But the broader issue is, you know, when other vaccines come on board, who should get them first? But Helen Clark, who the ex-Prime Minister of New Zealand, who's heading the um, International Inquiry Board about the pandemic, uh, she said publicly as one of her first statements just about two weeks ago, that uh, talking to the boffins in Geneva, it's at least two and a half years before a widely available effective vaccine is going to be available. Now, I don't think she knows necessarily any better than anyone else but this talk about success in laboratories and phase two and phase three and so on does not mean that we are suddenly going to have billions of doses of effective vaccine available within six 12 months well from what i understand now one of the reasons that the one of the ways in which the research and development process has been sped up is that the vaccines are being mass produced 
even before they've been proven to be 100% effective. So you've got hundreds of millions of doses before the trial is even finished, just in case it works, to cut out that lag time. So, you know, if it does prove to work, who knows how quickly we'll be getting it. But I even so, I agree with Nick. I heard, yeah. I had one person this... I heard from an expert this week who one of my friends had spoken to and then someone else I interviewed had spoken to the same expert and they got an a- one person got an answer of six months and the other person got an answer of two years. <laughs> that was coming from the same expert, you know, um, being tri- triangulated because, of course, people are uh, no doubt, you know, they're giving answers that reflect as much that they want to be positive and give hope sometimes as well as the science. Um but in terms of, so I had a look at some of the stuff though. Do you want to have some guesses on who gets the vaccine first? Um, let's Your go with say, CDC. So CDC's done it for the USA. The WHO's done it for the whole world, but they're pretty similar. Yeah. So uh, um, yeah, critical healthcare and other workers first. So not all, all healthcare workers, the ones working in the highest risk medical, um, national security and other essential workers. And in the USA, for example, that's about 12 million people have been uh, have been identified as being. So was that, that uh, ICU person. staff? And uh, yeah, I'd imagine paramedical ED staff, staff, ED yeah, staff, and yeah, psychiatry staff. Like Do we get it? Or Psych- <laughs> no, we'd be in tier, tier two or three. Tier two and three, though. Tier two includes all the other healthcare workers. Um, and uh, what else does tier two include? It includes elderly people, sixty-five and over, living yeah. in long-term yeah. care facilities, yeah. people yeah. with medical conditions that are known to increase the risk of developing severe COVID. Um, 19. They're sort of tiers two and three mixed together and with various caveats. And then, of course, the final two tiers are um, the general population and they're divided up according to risk. Like, for example, young people, the risks are so low, but then et cetera, et cetera. And, but then you do presumably want herd immunity too. The, oh, sorry, presumably we're talking about the general population in the developed world who are going to pay a lot of money for these vaccines and the communities that really need it, um, where social distancing, sanitizing and so on is much harder and will be the last. Well, you raise a really good point, Nick, because you raise that, you know, the theoretical um, tiers that the uh, that the workers and public health experts in the WHO create versus the politics of which countries buy it up, because we've already seen that. Of course, we had a millionaire in Australia or a billionaire buy a whole lot of hydrochloroquine. The USA bought up all the, I always pronounce it wrong, remdesivir or whatever it is. Yeah, right. um, the USA have already bagged a lot of the vaccines. Uh, you know, it's going to depend which country develops it. That's That's it's going to be something tricky to negotiate, I would imagine. But again, it's not in our uh, in our interests just to vaccinate everybody in one country and not the other countries because we trade with other countries and we have tourism with other countries. So it's not just about vaccinating your own population. It's making sure everybody's vaccinated. Nick, can I come to another topic very quickly because I can see we're running out of time and we could spend hours talking. We had lockdown 1.0, which was quite novel, and everybody kind of leaned into it. Now we're on to lockdown 2.0 in Victoria. Have you noticed a difference in the way that people are coping with it? Yeah, I think it's a very different experience second time round. And um, whereas people had that sort of sense of knuckling down and getting on because we had to, and then a bit of a sense of relief, oh, we're coming out and maybe that's it, job done. Um, that sense of, oh my God, now not only are we going back, but the numbers are scary. We have timelines that are uncertain. And some of the pressures on people, particularly in the mental health sense, I think this second time around have been much worse. And partly because there isn't that sense of when does this finish? 
Can you give us some examples? Who struggled the most? So uh, people who are stuck at home with kids, um, I think they have sometimes struggled very hard. I have a single parent who looks after a child, um, has an elderly mother at home as well. Now they can't go out. Um, really, really difficult when all, uh, all, all of the adults in that family have significant mental health issues in the first place. They have been so stoic and so tough, but the pressure I can feel is immense. I have a mother and an adult daughter um, where the daughter has a very significant anxiety disorder. Now, <laughs> COVID is the perfect trigger for anxiety because it's all about uncertainty. And if you're frightened of germs, just going out for a walk at the moment is a terrifying thing for someone with an anxiety disorder. And for that family, um, going out is terrifying. Being at home is claustrophobic and appalling. Uh, the stresses are huge. Yeah, I've also had some people who haven't um, didn't go out between lockdown one and lockdown two because they're you know they're vulnerable. They've got some a chronic condition of some sort. Do you think it's gone well? Is stuff what's gone wrong? I suppose is more my question. So I think when we started all this, Australia did very well. We did lock down pretty hard, pretty early. Perhaps we could have done it harder and sooner, but we did pretty well considering and looked as though it was successful. And what went wrong? I mean, really, it was a combination of a bit of stuff up and quite a lot of bad luck. Um, because really what's happening in Victoria could happen anywhere in Australia with just one or two cases getting out and just one crack in the system. Yeah. The thing that really concerns me about what we're doing is how often and how long can we do this for? How many cycles of lockdown can we go through? There's this continuing narrative, which is that the only way to get rid of this thing is to lock down and go hard and that sort of stuff. And I get that uh, from an epidemiological perspective, but in a social and political and economic uh, context, how many more months can we do this for? Six months, 12 months? And we have this fantasy of this vaccine that's going to arrive and deliver us from all evil. Um, but we have no certainty that it's ever going to happen we have a reasonable certainty that if it does at all, it's going to be at least six, probably 12 months away. So can we really keep doing this all that time? That's part of the uncertainty, isn't it? And also, I think with lockdown one, there was a sense of optimism and almost an esprit de corps, like, hey, we're winning. Look at us. You know, we're doing really well compared to other countries. Australia is really flattening that curve almost to zero. And there was a sense that, we, that we'd won almost. And now, especially, in, well, for the first couple of weeks in Victoria just recently, we weren't so optimistic. It seems as if we are keeping the curve flat. Steve, you, you just had something to talk about very quickly about what the aim of as lockdown two was. Oh, I was going to make just a couple of yeah. points. I mean, the whole point of lockdown, as we learned the first time round, was to flatten the curve. And remember back then, the point of flattening the curve was that so we could get our PPE into the country and get organised, so we could prevent a rapid upsurge in hospital admissions and overwhelming our EDs and our, um, our ICUs before they were ready. And now they're all ready. And um, so, but the, you know, the real goal was not back then, remember, it wasn't to eradicate, it was to flatten the curve. It was to turn it from, you know, looking like a big peak to a slowly building peak. And so the only point I want to make is lockdown two so far is going pretty well. 300 cases today. Um, you know, we're, we'd love to be a lot lower, but we've, we're clearly flattening the curve and it seems to going well. But like you guys, you know, I've noticed this sense of frustration this time around. And, you know, I, th and I thought it triggered what I would consider the first little misstep I'd seen from Dan Andrews, who I've been very impressed with. I've been incredibly impressed with his response so far and he's done everything, you know, plus or minus a week or two. 
pretty much within you know the guidelines of the experts. But the only thing that I thought, and I thought it was the frustration driving, it was this week one day when the numbers were particularly high. He had a real go at people who weren't towing the line and doing everything spot on. Now I got that, but again, like the tradie who yelled at me instead of saying, "Hey, mate, put your mask on," you know, instead of getting angry that people weren't isolating until their tests were ready, I thought you know a good leader would have said, "Look, we've got a lot of data here that says that you aren't isolating enough when you're waiting for the tests." So there's a few things I want to do. First, I want to remind you that you need to isolate. Secondly, I'm going to get the testing fixed up so you're not waiting three to five days, which is ridiculously too long. Some places do it in four hours. I had a test last week, you know, it was told four days. So secondly, get your testing fixed up. And thirdly, we keep hearing that the contact traces are overwhelmed. Get more contact traces. So rather than getting frustrated and blaming the public, take some responsibility, fix the things that need fixing, and just remind everyone in a nice manner. Give the guy a break, Steve. He's under a lot of pressure. And you don't know that he's not doing that already. You don't know that he's not doing that behind the scenes and just hasn't mentioned that. And maybe he is getting but frustrated. But wait a second. No, but I'm things. talking about messaging, and I do know it because I saw him do it. So, you know, <laughs> no, it's no, the messaging you, I'm talking been... about. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying the guy doesn't get a break. I prefaced my comments, if you were listening, by saying how well he's done so far. And, this, and I called it his first misstep. Okay. <laughs> just like this is your 20th mis- misstep in criticising me in- incorrectly. And I certainly would, I certainly would agree with you wholeheartedly that whichever side of politics you normally go for, um, everybody, whether it's at a federal or state level, oh my God, the work these people oh, are doing, I know. decisions Jeez. they're having to make. I mean, what a nightmare scenario to be in. And it's not that I agree with everything that's been done, but I absolutely take my hat off the amount of work that everybody from all sides of politics has been doing. <laughs> Ever toyed with the idea of going into politics, you would have been completely turned off it in the last couple you, of months. Do you reckon? I, I mean, I agree that, you know, I can't imagine the pressure of that. And I keep wondering, what's it like going to bed every night, wondering about whether the decision you made today is going to cause yeah. people to die or what? think these people are going to bed? Yeah, uh, that's part of it too. Yeah. But I also, I also imagine that, you know, if you go into politics, this is the sort of impact that you, oh, you know, you yeah, don't want to, you don't want a pandemic, yeah. but you know, this is where they're having their greatest yeah, impact. And this is also, I think the public's got a real look at politicians over the last six months and realised yeah, for all of the petty criticisms that they cop day in, day out, and okay, mine might've been a bit too petty, but for all the petty criticisms <laughs> they cop day in, day out, you know, gee, you know, the majority of them are hearts in the right place, trying the hardest, doing, really working hard. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's given the public a new yeah, appreciation. Look, look at the difference between, and I realise we're getting short of time but look at the difference between say the politics that covid has exposed in the united states incredibly partisan compared to the politics in australia i mean both sides have come together pretty well you got to say to try and work our way through this which is what you want from your politicians anyway i'll stop on that nick i'm going to ask you the question i ask every person that comes on this podcast and you're looking pretty relaxed anyway, because right now I'd be saying, breathe gently, picture your, your, your happy place, because it's a tricky question. What are you doing now that is different and better compared to pre-COVID times? Ooh. Well, a couple of obvious ones, I suppose, which is uh, trying very hard to look after myself, recognising that... Um, life is pretty stressful and difficult in all sorts of ways. So I'm eating well, I'm exercising like crazy, which is uh, something I recommend all the time for my patients. So doing lots and lots of physical stuff. Um, one of the things that completely changed everything, telehealth brought us up to this idea that when you have an appointment 
it happens at five minutes past 10. And the same has happened with Zoom meetings, which where we're having drinks with friends and so on. When we have Zoom drinks, they start at six o'clock. And when you invited people for drinks before, they might roll up at six. Yeah. <laughs> now, if people aren't on your Zoom drinks thing, at two minutes past six, you're sending them text messages saying, where are you? I'm, as, a, as someone who's a bit of a stickler for timing and so on, this new timing regime, I think, is something I'm going to keep for the future because yeah. I love the fact that it's six o'clock, bloody be there at six o'clock. And the other thing I think that people haven't yet learnt, when we have our Zoom drinks, whatever it is, we start at six. For God's sake, let's say, and we'll finish at 6.40 because everybody, after about 40 minutes and so on, doing these get together, you get a bit tired of it and you're thinking, oh, how the hell do we finish? So we must put a finish time on these things. So in future, when we have these get-togethers, we're going to do more of them um, remotely like this. We're going to have start times, but we're also going to have finish times. Hey, uh, Nick, that's a great, that's a great so idea. Much. Are you actually drinking now? <laughs> 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 Sorry, Steve, I pointed to you. Sorry. Um, uh, I was just going to say, the do the wind-up. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Shrink the Virus. It's been a pleasure hearing about what's going on in your world and in your practice and the issues that are important to you. Uh, I hope we uh, get to chat to you on the podcast again sometime. Well, thank you for a fascinating, stimulating conversation. So that was Shrink the Virus, this episode with me, Rob Seltzer, Steve Allen, and our guest, Nick Carr, who is a GP extraordinaire. Don't forget to tell your friends, family, neighbours. Write it in the sky. Write it anywhere about Shrink the Virus. Don't forget we've got... We are so slick. Don't forget, we've got Facebook page, Instagram, everything like that. They're all under Shrink the Virus. And, of course, we've got Gmail, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. And don't forget to tune in to Triple R. Our show every Sunday morning on 10 a.m. is called Radiotherapy. And, of course, thank yous to the Triple R people, Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael, who helped get this podcast up and running. We'll see you all next week. Thanks, Roberto. Cheers. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.